Chapter fourteen of Journey to the Centre of the Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Green. Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter fourteen. The Real Journey Commences. Our real journey had now commenced. Hitherto our courage and determination had overcome all difficulties. We were fatigued at times, and that was all. Now we were about to encounter unknown and fearful dangers. I had not as yet ventured to take a glimpse down the horrible abyss into which, in a few minutes more, I was about to plunge. The fatal moment had, however, at last arrived. I had still the option of refusing or accepting a share in this foolish and audacious enterprise, but I was ashamed to show more fear than the eider duck hunter. Hans seemed to accept the difficulties of the journey so tranquilly, with such calm indifference, with such perfect recklessness of all danger, that I actually blushed to appear less of a man than he. Had I been alone with my uncle, I should certainly have sat down and argued the point fully, but in the presence of the guide I held my tongue. I gave one moment to the thought of my charming cousin, and then I advanced into the mouth of the central shaft. It measured about a hundred feet in diameter which made about three hundred in circumference. I leaned over a rock which stood on its edge and looked down. My hair stood on end, my teeth chattered, my limbs trembled, I seemed utterly to lose my centre of gravity while my head was in a sort of whirl like that of a drunken man. There is nothing more powerful than this attraction towards an abyss. I was about to fall headlong into the gaping well when I was drawn back by a firm and powerful hand. It was that of Hans. I had not taken lessons enough at Frelser Kirk's of Copenhagen in the art of looking down from lofty eminences without blinking. However, few as the minutes were during which I gazed down this tremendous and even wondrous shaft, I had a sufficient glimpse of it to give me some idea of its physical conformation. Its sides, which were almost as perpendicular as those of a well, presented numerous projections which doubtless would assist our descent. It was a sort of wild and savage staircase, without banister or fence. A rope fastened above near the surface would certainly support our weight, and enable us to reach the bottom. But how, when we had arrived at its utmost depth, were we to loosen it above? This was, I thought, a question of some importance. My uncle, however, was one of those men who are nearly always prepared with expedients. He hit upon a very simple method of obviating this difficulty. He unrolled a cord about as thick as my thumb, and at least four hundred feet in length. He allowed about half of it to go down the pit and catch in a hitch over a great block of lava which stood on the edge of the precipice. This done, he threw the second half after the first. Each of us could now descend by catching the two cords in one hand. When about two hundred feet below, all the explorer had to do was to let go one end and pull away at the other, when the cord would come falling at his feet. In order to go down farther, all that was necessary was to continue the same operation. This was a very excellent proposition, and no doubt a correct one. Going down appeared to me easy enough. It was the coming up again that now occupied my thoughts. "'Now,' said my uncle, as soon as he had completed this important preparation, "'let us see about the baggage. It must be divided into three separate parcels, and each of us must carry one on his back. I allude to the more important and fragile articles.' My worthy and ingenious uncle did not appear to consider that we came under the denomination. 
"'Hans,' he continued, "'you will take charge of the tools and some provisions. "'Harry, you must take possession of another third of the provisions and of the arms. "'I will load myself with the rest of the eatables and with the more delicate instruments.' "'But,' I exclaimed, "'our clothes, this mass of cord and ladders, who will undertake to carry them down?' "'They will go down of themselves.' "'And how so?' I asked. "'You shall see.' My uncle was not fond of half-measures, nor did he like anything in the way of hesitation. Giving his orders to Hans, he had the whole of the non-fragile articles made up into one bundle, and the packet, firmly and solidly fastened, was simply pitched over the edge of the gulf. I heard the moaning of the suddenly displaced air, and the noise of falling stones. My uncle, leaning over the abyss, followed the descent of his luggage with a perfectly self-satisfied air, and did not rise until it had completely disappeared from sight. "'Now, then,' he cried, "'it is our turn.' I put it in good faith to any man of common sense. Was it possible to hear this energetic cry without a shudder? The professor fastened his case of instruments on his back. Hans took charge of the tools, I of the arms. The descent then commenced in the following order. Hans went first, my uncle followed, and I went last. My progress was made in profound silence a silence only troubled by the fall of pieces of rock which, breaking from the jagged sides, fell with a roar into the depths below. I allowed myself to slide, so to speak, holding frantically on the double cord with one hand, and with the other keeping myself off the rocks by the assistance of my iron-shod pole. One idea was all the time impressed upon my brain. I feared that the upper support would fail me. The cord appeared to me far too fragile to bear the weight of three such persons as we were, with our luggage. I made as little use of it as possible, trusting to my own agility, and doing miracles in the way of feats of dexterity and strength upon the projecting shelves and spurs of lava, which my feet seemed to clutch as strongly as my hands. The guide went first, I have said, and when one of the slippery and frail supports broke from under his feet, he had recourse to his usual monosyllabic way of speaking. Gif act! "'Attention, look out,' repeated my uncle. "'In about half an hour we reached a kind of small terrace "'formed by a fragment of rock, "'projecting some distance from the sides of the shaft. "'Hans now began to haul upon the cord on one side only, "'the other going as quietly upwards as the other came down. "'It fell at last, bringing with it a shower of small stones, lava and dust. "'A disagreeable kind of rain or hail. "'While we were seated on this extraordinary bench,' I ventured once more to look downwards. With a sigh I discovered that the bottom was still wholly invisible. Were we then going direct to the interior of the earth? The performance with the cord recommenced, and a quarter of an hour later we had reached to the depth of another two hundred feet. I have very strong doubts if the most determined geologist would, during that descent, have studied the nature of the different layers of the earth around him. I did not trouble my head much about the matter whether we were among the combustible carbons, silurians, or primitive soil, I neither knew nor cared to know. Not so the inveterate professor. He must have taken notes all the way down, for, at one of our halts, he began a brief lecture. "'The farther we advance,' said he, "'the greater is my confidence of the result. The disposition of these volcanic strata absolutely confirms the theories of Sir Humphrey Davy.' We are still within the region of the primordial soil, the soil in which took place the chemical operation of metals, becoming inflamed by coming in contact with the air and water. I at once regret the old and now for ever exploded theory of a central fire. 
At all events, we shall soon know the truth. Such was the everlasting conclusion to which he came. I, however, was very far from being in humour to discuss the matter. I had something else to think of. My silence was taken for consent, and still we continued to go down. At the expiration of three hours, we were, to all appearance, as far off as ever from the bottom of the well. When I looked upwards, however, I could see that the upper orifice was every minute decreasing in size. The sides of the shaft were getting closer and closer together. We were approaching the regions of eternal night. And still we continued to descend. At length I noticed, when pieces of stone were detached from the sides of this stupendous precipice, they were swallowed up with less noise than before. The final sound was sooner heard. We were approaching the bottom of the abyss. As I had been very careful to keep account of all the changes of cord which took place, I was able to tell exactly what was the depth we had reached, as well as the time it had taken. We had shifted the rope twenty-eight times, each operation taking a quarter of an hour, which in all made seven hours. To this had to be added twenty-eight pauses, in all ten hours and a half. We started at one, it was now therefore about eleven o'clock at night. It does not require great knowledge of arithmetic to know that twenty-eight times two hundred feet makes five thousand six hundred feet in all, more than an English mile. While I was making this mental calculation, a voice broke the silence. It was the voice of Hans. "'Halt!' he cried. I checked myself very suddenly, just at the moment when I was about to kick my uncle on the head. "'We have reached the end of our journey,' said the worthy professor, in a satisfied tone. "'What, the interior of the earth?' I said, slipping down to his side. "'No, you stupid fellow, but we have reached the bottom of the well.' "'And I suppose there is no farther progress to be made,' I hopefully exclaimed. "'Oh, yes, I can dimly see a sort of tunnel which turns off obliquely to the right. At all events, we must see about that to-morrow. Let us sup now, and seek slumber as best we may.' I thought it time, but made no observations on that point. I was fairly launched on a desperate course, and all I had to do was to go forward hopefully and trustingly. It was not even now quite dark, the light filtering down in a most extraordinary manner. We opened the provision-bag, ate a frugal supper, and each did his best to find a bed amid the pile of stones, dirt, and lava which had accumulated for ages at the bottom of the shaft. I happened to grope out the pile of ropes, ladders, and clothes which we had thrown down, and upon them I stretched myself. After such a day's labour, my rough bed seemed as soft as down. For a while I lay in a sort of pleasant trance. Presently, after lying quietly for some minutes, I opened my eyes and looked upwards. As I did so, I made out a brilliant little dot at the extremity of this long, gigantic telescope. It was a star without scintillating rays. According to my calculation, it must be Beta, in the constellation of the Little Bear. After this little bit of astronomical recreation, I dropped into a sound sleep. End of chapter 14